Good morning, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Thursday, so this is an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy our show. This story was first published on February 6th of 2011 under the headline... Little Remains of Backwoods Luxury Spa at Will Hoyt Springs. Here we go. Will Hoyt Road is a narrow, lonely country road that runs south out of Molala and makes a beeline for the side of the Cascade Mountains. About 15 miles later, it gets there and dead ends into a pair of driveways. One of these driveways is the entrance to a modest, mostly unimproved county park that almost nobody more than 20 miles away knows exists. Yet, this quiet, tucked-away place was once one of Clackamas County's top tourist attractions, Wilhoit Springs. Wilhoit's heyday was around the turn of the 20th century, when many people believed that water, especially strong mineral water, had special medical power. Spas and resorts devoted to what was then known as hydropathy, now mostly referred to as hydrotherapy, proliferated in Europe, and millions of people went to them to take the cure for a week or two. And in many cases, it worked. People whose medical complaints stemmed from exhaustion found that a couple of weeks of lounging around a steamy pool and taking frequent aromatic baths very therapeutic indeed. They came home refreshed, rejuvenated, and cured. As for the other complaints, well, the improved circulation caused by soaking in hot water was bound to temporarily relieve some of the symptoms of things like arthritis and chronic pain and even congestive heart failure. For hydropathic purposes, the water that bubbled out of the ground at Wilhoit and flowed into nearby Table Rock Creek was particularly attractive. In one spot, it was noticeably thickened by rust-colored minerals. In another, it was light and effervescent. It was with this in mind that a developer named Frank McLaren bought the property from the pioneer who'd perfected a land claim on it a few years before in 1866. McLaren got right to work. Within a dozen years or so, he'd built a big hotel, a bathhouse, and several other structures, along with a post office. He'd talked the postal service into approving that in 1882, and this was at a time when Wilhoit Springs was 30 or 40 ruddy, bone-jarring wagon road miles from either Salem or Oregon City. By the turn of the century, the place was a big hit. The hotel had burned down and been replaced with a rustic palace built of logs, and it was joined by an array of cabins, a band pavilion, a store, several gazebos, and even a bowling alley. People poured into the place from cities all over the West, and indeed from beyond as well, to take the Clackamas County cure. McLaren also bottled the water up and sold it locally and in Portland. On the label, the water's per-gallon mineral content, as measured in 1869, was proudly listed. It included 338 cubic inches of carbonic acid gas, that would be carbon dioxide, 201 grains of salt, 87.57 grains of sodium carbonate, that would be baking soda, 85.32 grains of magnesium carbonate, which is the active ingredient in the popular laxative Phillips Milk of Magnesia, 32.23 grains of calcium carbonate, which of course is chalk, the active ingredient in Tums, 
6 grains of iron carbonate, which is ore-grade iron, and 3.4 grains of iron sulfate, which is a common form of nutritional supplement iron. Finally, 6.45 grains of magnesium sulfate, which is Epsom salts. Other sources also include sodium sulfate on the list. Now, sodium sulfate is a non-toxic sulfur salt with a distinctly disagreeable odor. Anyone who passed downwind of a paper mill before about 1985 knows that smell well. Sodium sulfate used to be a key part of the pulping process. It is not hard to imagine why that ingredient did not make the label. In large enough doses, this array of minerals would provide real relief from heartburn, constipation, gas, sour stomach, certain skin conditions, and iron deficiency anemia. So it's not surprising that the springs acquired a reputation for being medically therapeutic. Not every claim could be supported by medical science, though. There were plenty of wild promises made on resort letterhead. Perhaps the most startling claim of medical benefit from the water appeared on a brochure from the resort printed during its 1890s heyday. Quote, Relieves the appetite for drink, it proclaimed. It is the much-appreciated experience of many drinking men that this water will satisfy the craving for strong drink in a most remarkable manner. The victim of drink finds Wilhoit water a most refreshing, enlivening, and invigorating draft, which leaves no sting behind and no distressing reaction. For that particular nervousness, after a period of excessive drinking, the water used freely is admirable in its effect to soothe in quiet body and mind. That last claim actually makes sense. As a hangover cure, the water's mineral profile is close enough to Alka-Seltzer to be quite credible. But as a sort of methadone for alcoholics, not so much. Whatever the water's effect on the drinking man, the combination of an intensely mineraled water with noticeable therapeutic effects and a thoroughly developed resort community and top-shelf restaurant all set in a glorious flat clearing amid old-growth fir trees on the sunny side of a sparkling medium-sized creek was magical for many years. Early in the 1900s, though, theories of medicine that weren't provably scientific started to lose ground. After World War I, they lost it fast. Hydropathy was one of the victims of this trend and, quote, taking the cure ceased to be thought of as a medical necessity. Outside visitors to Wilhoit stopped coming. The resort started to fade. It all ended for real one day in the 1920s when a fire broke out in the log hotel. There wasn't enough business to justify rebuilding it, and without it, Wilhoit was little more than a picnic area. The post office closed in 1928. Until the big windstorm of 1962, there were still remnants of the old resort on the scene. A row of cabins with pointy gables reminiscent of the architecture of Lincoln City's Pixieland sat empty and abandoned, surrounded by clusters of sword ferns. The old band pavilion, shingles stripped from its roof, stood skeletal in the field for many years as well. The property's new owners, the Shunborn family, welcomed visitors, but there was not much to see. By the mid-1970s, Clackamas County had acquired the place as a park, but you wouldn't have known it to look at it. It was like a secret park. All the structures were gone, leaving an overgrown field. All that remained was the concrete foundation of the bathhouse, with the soda springs well casing in the middle, covered with a stainless steel lid and an official-looking sign warning that the water should not be drunk, a sign that the locals ignored but which kept outside visitors from thinking much of the place. Perhaps that was the idea. I grew up on Wilhoit Road, Route 1, Box 348B to be precise, so I was a relatively frequent visitor in the mid-1970s, although there wasn't much to do there. When I returned again to visit it in 2009, I found much had changed. 
There's an entrance sign now, for one thing, and the grounds are groomed with pathways and a deck built for access to the spring. There's even a big pitcher pump at the old location of the mineral spring for those who want to taste the thick stuff. The water is probably best and most charitably described as an acquired taste. Although, frankly, I never did quite manage to acquire it, but I have found that it makes a fantastic mineral addition for home beer brewing, especially for a heavy India pale ale. Key sources in this story have included works by Judith Chapman, George Walton, W.H. Leeds, and DuntonFarms.com. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 550 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulplet Productions, pulp-lit.com, a boutique publishing house owned and operated by yours truly, specializing in audiobook and multimedia editions of the work of the classic pre-war pulp writers. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license type CC by SA 4.0, which basically means you can do anything with the content you like, so long as you A, give me credit for it, and B, whatever you make is also released under a Creative Commons license. But if you need a waiver to either A or B, hit me up, fj at offbeatoregon.com. I've never said no yet to a request for a waiver of one of those conditions. They're generally there just to prevent me from accidentally authorizing the reuse of something I don't actually control the rights to. A good example might be a photograph used by special permission of the rights holder. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every single weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. (laughs) ¶¶